The strange writing on this clay brick is known as cuneiform. Now, this script was used for hundreds of years in ancient history. Here, international presenter Gary Webster and travel with him to ancient Babylon and the island of Patmos to discover how ancient mysteries reveal the future. The triumph of justice, the spectacular prophecy that Nostradamus missed, sure is a prophecy that this fellow missed, and we're going to see it this afternoon as we track through an amazing prophecy. Now, Nostradamus, who was this man? Well, Nostradamus lived back in the 1500s. He was actually a French physician and an astrologer. I watched a program on television some years ago on Nostradamus because lots of people talk about this man and what he's been doing and so on or what he's done or the predictions that he's made. He wrote these uh, quatrains, we call them. These are four-line rhymes and he wrote about a thousand of these things and people who read his writings, they say these things are predictions, many of them. In fact, they say that he predicted the assassination of John F. Kennedy, President Kennedy. They say he also predicted the great fire of London in 1666 and the summer storms of 1996. Not only that, he used interesting methods to make predictions. What Nostradamus would do would be he would sit alone in a dark room. Pretty eerie, isn't it? Then he would gaze at water in a hanging bowl. So here's a bowl hanging with water in it, and he gazed at the surface of the water after he touched it with his wand. And then as he's looking into the water, he would dampen his robe and stare at the water surfaces, and he hear voices. And uh, so the quatrains that he made, these are supposed to be predictions. Nostradamus predicted... So the experts say that in the year 1999, seven months from the sky, there will come a great king of terror. And they predicted that the world would end in 1999, back I think it was July. Well, we're still here today, so Nostradamus clearly got that wrong. And we're going to look at an incredible prophecy now that Nostradamus certainly never talked about But this book talks about in great detail and shows us very clearly where we are today in the stream of time. This prophecy is far more spectacular than any of these quatrains that you can read from Nostradamus. This prediction that is found in the book of Daniel concerns justice in our world today. And as you understand, justice is one of the greatest needs in our world today. There are many people who are languishing in prisons in this world who should never be there. They were framed or just the, the course of justice wasn't done right. There are many people outside of prisons, who, and you and I know, that should be in prison. They've just escaped getting in there at the moment because they are able to manipulate things or stay clear of the police or whatever it is. Justice is one of the greatest needs in the world today. Sometimes we don't think about this until we're the one on the receiving end of some accusation which is not true and we lose our job or we may end up in jail. Then we want justice. Isn't that it? If somebody's been terribly abused, they want justice. 
And justice is one of the greatest things that a country can give its people. Justice is vitally needed in the world today. John saw four beasts come up out of the sea. We're going to look at these in more detail next weekend. These four beasts, he noticed, one of them was a horrible monster with iron teeth and ten horns. He was particularly interested in one of these horns, a little one. This little horn, as we're going to see next weekend, is the Antichrist. And we're going to see that in more detail. We'll go into it in detail. But I just want to talk about what Antichrist does. A couple of things. He has some terrible actions here. Terrible things Antichrist does. Number one, he attacks God in the book of Daniel. He attacks God's people and he attacks God's laws, his commandments in the book of Daniel. Chapter 7, it's mentioned. But we'll see it in more detail next week. You see, when you have those things going on, Somebody needs justice. Notice what the Bible said. He speaks pompous words, this horn, against the Most High. He's against the Most High. He persecutes the saints of the Most High. He shall intend to change the times and laws, that is, of the Most High, that it's talking about. Then he, it says, then he, the saints, God's people, will be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. You see, justice is needed. There is a great need for justice in Daniel chapter 7. And that's what Daniel sees next. Daniel sees a justice court. The judgment shall sit and they shall take away his dominion to consume it and to destroy it unto the end. Thank God, God had a judgment to deal in a just way with this great power that we'll look at next week. Notice Daniel repeats it again in this same chapter. The ancient of days came and a judgment was made in the favor of the saints, in their favor and the saints of the Most High. And the time came, it says, for the saints or God's people to possess the kingdom, the kingdom of God. Thank God for justice in the book of Daniel. In fact, the book of Daniel means God is my judge. That's what the name means. It's a book about God bringing justice to his people. So judgment here on the Antichrist, justice on the Antichrist in the book of Daniel. Now Daniel brings this theme up again in the next chapter in another interesting way. In chapter 8, we've been there already. We saw there's a war between a ram and a goat. And you will remember that we unpacked what those things mean. The ram, he said, was Medo-Persia, and we read the text that Daniel speaks about that, naming this power before it comes to power. Then he said the goat was Greece, and we talked about that the other evening. And he names Greece. He also said the horn between its eyes is the first king of the great Greek empire, and that was Alexander the Great, and we talked about how this man received this prophecy and spared Jerusalem. You'll recall that. Then he sees, Daniel sees, that after that horn is broken, Alexander dies, four generals take over his kingdom and Greece was divided into four. And that's exactly what history says. And that's what Daniel predicted way before this ever happened. We went through that. Then we notice this phrase. He said, four notable ones, four horns, came up toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them, out of one of the four winds or the four points of the compass, he says, what happened? He says, came a little horn, just like there was a little horn in chapter 7. Now in chapter 8, there's a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. This little horn, what is this little horn? 
This little horn we saw is Rome because he tells us it went to the promised land or the glorious land and so on. We went through all that. But also we notice the actions of this little horn as time goes on. This becomes the Antichrist as we're going to see in programs down the track. Notice the actions of this power, just like the little horn in Daniel 7. Out of one of these, one of the four points of the compass, came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great, but notice what he says it does. It cast down some of the host, that's God's people, some of the stars to the ground, and it trampled on them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and he cast the truth down to the ground. Just like in the previous chapter, he changes the laws of God, he's casting truth down to the ground. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes. Notice the things this little horn does now in chapter 8, similar to chapter 7, attacks God, the prince of princes, that's Jesus the Christ. Not only that, he attacks God's people, it says, he tramples on them. And finally, it says he attacks God's truth, he casts that to the ground. Serious things indeed. In fact, this is, as we said, this is the same actions as the little horn in the previous chapter. But Daniel is giving us more detail in chapter 8 than he gave in chapter 7, as we talked about that principle the other day. This is the Antichrist again. It becomes the Antichrist as time moves on. Now, notice, Daniel hears a voice. Then I heard a holy one speaking. How long will the vision be? How long is this going to go on for? How long is this power going to trample on the truth? How long is he going to be against the prince of princes? How long is he going to cast God's people down? How long? That's a good question. When God allows things to go on, those same questions come to us in our personal life, right? When are you going to act God? Daniel heard that cry, how long till God does something? This is a cry for justice. That cry, how long, is mentioned elsewhere in this book. How long till you do something, God? When will we have justice? When will you set the record straight? When will you fix things up? This is the cry we hear in Daniel 8. And then we hear an interesting answer to that question in Daniel chapter 8, verse 14. He said to me, for 2,300 days, or evenings and mornings, because that's the term he uses, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. Why they say days and translated as days is because when the, you read the opening chapter of the Bible, it says the evening and the morning were the first day, and the evening and the morning were the second day. That's why it's days you see here. After 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. That's the answer to the question, how long is this power going to do this for? How long? When are you going to act? That's what he says. Now, we need to understand some things here this afternoon. If we're to understand this, and we will because we're going to go to Revelation as well. What does it mean, the cleansing of the sanctuary or the cleansing of the temple? We must understand that phrase or we're not going to understand this passage. What is this time business? How do we understand this phrase, the 2,300 days? It's the Bible's longest time prophecy that you'll find anywhere in the Bible. 2,300 days. How do we understand these things? Well, let's begin with the cleansing of the sanctuary. Let's start to unpack the idea of the cleansing of the sanctuary. Let's 
Think about the temple or the sanctuary for a moment. We saw last weekend that the sanctuary or the temple, as it was called, was an illustration of God's way of solving the sin problem for every one of us. We noted back then that there were key players, the sacrifices and the priests, you remember. Both of those pointed to Jesus, who was the solver of the sin problem. Jesus is the priest and Jesus is the sacrifice. We saw that last weekend. Now notice what it says. And he said to me, for 2,300 days, evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. So we understand a little bit about the sanctuary. It points to Jesus the sacrifice and Jesus the priest. But what's the cleansing thing about? What's that about? So let's seek to understand the cleansing part right now. We'll need to go back and have a little look at how the temples work on a daily basis. You see... On a daily basis, people brought their animal sacrifices, their animals to the temple. First of all, morning and evening, the priest would sacrifice a lamb for the entire nation. Morning and evening, he would lay his hands on the animal and confess over the animal the sins of the people. Then the animal would be killed and the blood would be taken into the temple. So you can see, or the, before we go there, if you had done something exceptionally wrong yourself, you know, you would have to bring your own animal. If you were rich, you might bring a cow. If you were a little poorer, you might bring a sheep. If you were very poor, you'd bring a little dove, a turtle dove. And you would lay your hands on the animal, confessing on the animal your sin, and then you would kill that animal yourself. You would take its life. God was teaching the people. This is before Jesus came. How else would they understand the importance of a a death of somebody to come without this process that they had? And so this taught the people sin is costly. The forgiveness of your sin costs an innocent animal its life and you are responsible because you took the life of it because it's your sin, you see. It was teaching the people of a saviour to come, one who would die for the human race. Now, you can see what's happening. The sin is moving. It's going from me, the sinner, onto the animal because I lay my hands on that animal and now the sin goes onto the animal. But then when the animal is killed, the blood is caught and that blood is taken by the priest and he sprinkles it in front of the curtain inside the temple. He sprinkles some of it there, puts some of it on the horns of the altar, but sprinkles some of it inside the temple before the curtain. So the sin is being moving into the temple from the individual via the process inside. Now, this is pointing to the fact that Jesus the Christ, he died for our sin But now he's our high priest. We confess our sins. We say, God, forgive me. He, as our advocate, our high priest in heaven, he takes his death, as it were, and pleads for or presents his death to God on our behalf because we've accepted him. The sin is moving on to the sacrifice at that Calvary, and now it's going into the temple, so to speak. Jesus is our high priest. It's moving. So the temple is becoming defiled as the year goes on in the Jewish ceremonies. It's becoming contaminated. It needed cleansing. 
needed to get this stuff out of there, spiritually speaking. So once a year, they had a day of cleaning, a day of cleansing, not of with Omo and surf and so on, but a spiritual cleansing. This was known as Yom Kippur. One day of every year, they cleaned the whole temple of removing sin from out from inside the temple to take it out of the temple. Yom Kippur, the sacred annual day of judgment, is what it was regarded by the Jewish people. And there was a good reason for that from the Bible. Notice what they had to do. You had to come to the temple on this day or something would happen. Any person, it says, talking about the Day of Atonement or the Yom Kippur, any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day, they will be cut off from their people. They would no longer be Israelites. They would be cut off. It was regarded as a day of judgment in the Bible annually. I'm flying on a plane one day from Sydney to Vanuatu. I'm sitting up the back of this uh, virgin flight next to a man who says, I'm a Jewish man living in Vanuatu. There are six of us, he says. Only six of us live in Vanuatu because I was going to run programs like we're running here. And so we got talking. And in the course of the conversation, he said something interesting. I knew it already, but it was interesting to hear it from this Jewish man. He said, we Jews regard Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement, or the Day of Cleansing, as an annual day of judgment. Interesting to hear it from that man himself as a Jewish man. And that's exactly how the Bible regards it and how Jewish people have regarded this one day of the year. Now, what would they do? Well, they would take, let me just explain it to you, they would take a goat, two goats in fact, and they would cast lots on these goats, and one goat would be sacrificed. The goat that was sacrificed, the priest would take its blood and for the f- he would take it into the temple, making atonement for the altar, it says, and for the temple and for the people. The whole thing was cleansed. This is what he would do. He would take the blood for the only this one time of the year and he would go into the second room of the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was. You remember we saw that. Last weekend, the sacred box with the Ten Commandments in. He would take the blood from that slain animal and he would sprinkle the blood on what was called the mercy seat, the lid of that box. Why? Because the Ten Commandments define and protect our most important relationships. And like us, Israel broke those and they needed forgiveness and the blood was sprinkled over the top. The forgiveness of their breaking of those, you see. So this was the only day of the year that the high priest would go into the second room and then he would come out carrying all the sins of the whole nation and he would lay his hands on that other goat and it would be taken out into the wilderness and left outside the camp of Israel. This was the cleansing of the temple for the year. The sacrifice of that animal would cleanse the temple and take it out. This was their one day of the year, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Now, this portrayed the great final judgment day of planet Earth. That's what it was portraying. There is coming a day when in the work of Christ, he would become the judge of the world as well. Now, interestingly, when we go to the Bible, we discover that there's a temple in heaven. 
The book of Hebrews talks about a temple in heaven again and again. And this is a book written to the Christian church. But right there in the center of Revelation, in two passages, we're told there's a temple in heaven. John says, then the temple of God was opened in heaven. Heaven is not the temple. There's a temple in heaven, he says very specifically. The temple of God was opened in heaven. Now to notice what else he says. He even says, or Paul says, that the temple in heaven needed cleansing. This is interesting. Notice what it says here. Back in the book of Hebrews, Paul is explaining about the Jewish services. He's talking to Jewish Christians. He says, therefore, it was necessary that the copies, the earthly temples, in other words, the one given to Moses and so on, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, with these sacrifices, goats and sheep and bullocks and so on. He says, but the heavenly things themselves, he says, with better sacrifices than these. Namely, he talks about the sacrifice of Jesus. Just as the earthly temples were cleansed, he says, so the heavenly things need cleansing. God has taken the sins of the world on himself. Jesus died. And as our priest, he's taken those sins upon himself. And heaven needs to be cleansed in the sense that God is not responsible for that. Even though he's taken them on himself, he is not the one who caused all of this. So these yearly day of cleansing or judgment once a year pointed to the end time final judgment of this world when God will bring justice to God's, his people. Now, that's what John saw. John saw in the middle of Revelation, earth's final events. Notice we've seen it before, but notice what he says. The nations were angry and your wrath has come, the time for God to act and the time of the dead that they should be judged. He mentions it specifically and that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, your people, and those who fear your name, meaning who love and respect you. And then he says, notice what he saw next. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen, the ark of his covenant, I should say, was seen in his temple. What is John seeing here? He is seeing in the final events of planet Earth, he is seeing the Ark of the Covenant in heaven's temple. What's that telling him? There's only one day in which the Ark of the Covenant was seen in those earthly temples, and that was on the Day of Atonement, the Day of Judgment. John is telling us the Judgment Day has come for planet Earth. God is going to bring justice to his people. So now we can read Daniel's writings and understand what he's talking about now. What's he saying? For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. He's saying then the judgment will commence. That's what he's telling us. Then the sanctuary will be cleansed or the judgment of God will begin. So let's put it up here. 2,300 days, after 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed or the judgment will begin. Now, this is exactly what Daniel had portrayed, if you remember. At this time in his vision, he saw these four beasts, 
Then he saw that horrible monster with that little horn, which was the Antichrist, and the Antichrist was doing terrible things. But what happened next in chapter 7? The judgment brought justice on the Antichrist. He says, the judgment was set and the books were open. In Daniel chapter 7, because the Antichrist has been doing terrible things, God sets a day of judgment to bring justice for his people. In Daniel 8, after this little power has been throwing down the truth and these terrible things speaking against God's people and destroying them, then he says the sanctuary will be cleansed, which means the judgment begins exactly at the same point in those two great visions. No question. The time for judgment or justice has come. Now, what about these 2,300 days? How do we understand this now? What does this mean? Let's go back and to where Daniel was given this. Daniel has a visit from Gabriel again. Notice what Gabriel says to him. The vision of the evenings and the mornings. In this vision, as Daniel is told, how long? It's going to be like this. He's told the vision of the evenings and the mornings, that's the 2,300, which was told is true, Daniel. God makes a point of telling him this is absolutely true. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. Now, just a a few verses previous, he said these words about the 2,300. Understand, son of man, that the vision, the 2,300 days, refers to when? The time of the end. It's going to take us to the time of the end. Not the end of time, but the time in which the end happens. That's what he means by that phrase. The time of the end. This vision, Daniel, of the 2,300, it will take us to the time of the end. In other words... This is greater than 2,300 literal days because 2,300 literal days from Daniel's time is only about six or seven years. It's not going to take you anywhere near there. But he says it refers to the time of the end. Now, we have discovered that a day represents a year, and this is what Daniel is being told. The 2,300 prophetic days are symbolic of 2,300 literal years. Remember we saw a few programs ago that one day in Bible prophecy, that is, represents a literal year in time, one prophetic day. We saw this from the prophet Ezekiel. You recall Ezekiel was made to do some street drama. I talked about that and he was given this principle. Every day he lied on his side represented a year in literal time. I've laid on you a day for each year. So 2,300 years, that's why Daniel wept about this thing. Why so long? How come God is going to take so long to act? Look what happened when Daniel finished this vision in chapter 8. I, Daniel, fainted and I was sick for days. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. You having trouble understanding it? Join the club. Daniel himself didn't get it, you see. But he's going to get it because a little later on, he gets another visit. So Daniel was sick about this thing. Why so long? That's a long time. Daniel understood that principle. 
Now we come to the next chapter, Daniel chapter 9. Daniel is studying, as we saw the other day, he's studying about Israel. They've been, their city has been destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC. They're all off there in Babylon, most of them. They are living in a strange city. And Daniel is studying the prophecy of Jeremiah, where Jeremiah predicted that they would be captives for 70 years. And Daniel realizes that those 70 years are drawing to a close. He can even see, no doubt, a name Cyrus coming on the political horizon in his day. And he's mentioned in the book of Isaiah as going to deliver the Jews from Babylon. So he's watching the political landscape with his Bible open. He's studying exactly what we should do, the prophecies of God in connecting with the unfolding events that are current around us and their history. That's the way God gave it to Daniel, and that's the way we should study the book of Daniel and Revelation. So he's studying this period of deliverance. As he's studying it, he realizes the time's come, so he goes to prayer and he says, God, you promised us, you told us we would be delivered. Lord, the time is up. When will you act? And he prays. In Daniel 9, a beautiful prayer of confession of the terrible sin of Israel in that chapter. And when he's finished, suddenly, there is Gabriel. He appears before Daniel and notice what he says. He says, oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. Remember the previous chapter? He didn't understand. Now he's going to understand. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Jeremiah's is not a vision. This is the vision that he had in the previous chapter. I, you couldn't understand. You were sick. Now, Daniel, I've come to give you understanding about this vision, this matter. He says 70 weeks are determined or cut off for your people. That's what the word determined means in the Hebrew. Cut off, severed. Something's chopped off of something. For your people and for your holy city. Okay, so let's put it up here now. 70 weeks are determined upon your people. Cut off from what? Well, in the previous vision, it was that long period of time that he didn't understand. Why so long? Now Gabriel comes along and says, listen, Daniel, 70 weeks are cut off from that great period. Cut off for who? Cut off for what? Here it is. Seventy weeks are determined or cut off from this big period for your people and your holy city. So let's put it up here. Israel or Jerusalem, it's been destroyed. Now, Daniel, when you come out of captivity, when your people come out, there's going to be a 70-week portion of this period that's cut off for Israel, for Jerusalem and your people. So let's put it up here. The 70 weeks or the 490 years which we studied before, you will remember, for 70 weeks, 70 times 7, 490 days, 490 years. That's cut off from that. When's the starting date? Well, we saw when the starting date was, the other evening of this prophecy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem. When the decree is made to restore Jerusalem, that's when we have our starting date, Daniel. That's what Gabriel says. When was that command given? We saw 457 B.C. In the seventh year of King Artaxerxes, he says, I issue a decree, and he talks about the restoration of Jerusalem. 
Here is the decree, and we know it was made in the year 457. In fact, it's fascinating. I take people, when we come to Egypt, down to Aswan. Because some years ago, archaeologists came across some amazing documents down here on Elephantine Island. The Jewish, many of the people who went to Babylon, some of the ones who were left by the Babylonians, they took Jeremiah captive and they went down to Egypt. They were not supposed to go there, but they ended up down there at the same time and they had colonies. And one of them was here on Elephantine Island. It's an island in the middle of the Nile River at the Aswan, place called Aswan. You can see it's an island here because the river goes around it both ways. But this was where there was a Jewish colony on this island. Some Jewish mercenaries, in other words, Jews became soldiers for the Egyptians during their history. They were mercenaries for the Egyptians after this time period. And these are their homes that we're looking at right there in the foreground. When archaeologists were excavating, they discovered from this island some amazing papyri document. They were double-dated, what we call Aramaic language, double-dated documents. And what these documents have helped archaeologists and historians to realise is that date, 457 BC, actually is correct. Daniel's time prophecy, a fascinating thing. Even though we didn't have that information before, we knew it because it was his seventh year, but these have helped us to confirm that. So for 70 weeks, we know that begins in 457 BC. All we need to do now is add 490 to 457 and we'll come to the year 34 AD and we did that the other day. So 34 AD is the end of that 70-week part that's cut off for Israel. All right, that's 490-year part. Now, all we need to do is subtract 490 from 2,300 and we'll get 1,810 because that's the, the balance. And now we just add that to 34 AD, add 1810 to 34 AD, and you don't have to be a rocket scientist to realise that that brings us to the year 1844. That's when John, Daniel says the judgment begins. That's exactly what he's telling him. Now, I can almost see some of you raising your eyebrows at this point. Just hang on a little bit, okay? Many people think the judgment occurs when Jesus comes. Just hold on a little bit, and you'll see what the Bible really does have to say about this. The judgment begins, he says, in 1844. Now, let me just... Put this question up. You are asking, how can you be sure about that? We can be absolutely positive about that from the Bible for this very good reason. You will notice this part here, the 70 weeks. This is precise. We have seen it before. This is the 70 weeks, which begins, it says, or not begins, but one of its points is 27 AD when Jesus was baptized. Jesus was baptized in 27 AD. We took a lot of time to show that the other night. Right on time, he was baptized 27 AD. Then three and a half years later, he was crucified in 31 AD. These things cannot be knocked. Those are absolutely fixed dates. Now, if those dates are correct, then the rest has to be right. Because if that's not right, that's not right. It all fits together. 
It's Christ's life and Christ's death that assures us of this prophecy in terms of its time. It's absolutely founded on the death and the ministry of Jesus Christ. If that is not the date, then this did not happen. But this did happen, and it happened on time, and Jesus said so. The time is fulfilled. On time, the curtain in the temple was split in two from top to bottom. God is trying to tell us something here in his prophetic words. So this can absolutely be seen to be correct. It can't be faulty. So the judgment did begin in 1844. Now, let me show you something from the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation teaches that the judgment begins before Jesus returns. That's how the judgment sits and God takes those who belong to him that we talked about yesterday because there's been a judgment process, a justice process. How do we know that from Revelation? Well, you will remember in Revelation 14, John hears three angels' messages. The first angel's message says these words, The hour of God's judgment has come. Now, in the Greek language, that phrase, has come, it means that when the angel announces that, it's already started. So when the angel says the judgment has come, He means it started. That's the force of the Greek language that's used there. But then he sees a second angel who comes after the first one. The judgment has begun in the first message. But then the second angel says these words, Babylon has fallen. And we'll understand that in the next programs to come. Babylon has fallen. But then comes a third message. After the second one in time comes a third one and the third one says, don't receive the mark of the beast because if you do, then you will receive the wrath of God. In other words, this is a warning message, even number two and number three, change correction while there's still time. So first angel, the judgment has begun. Then a later comes a second angel, Babylon has fallen. We'll understand that. Then comes a third one, the final one. He says, listen, don't receive the mark of the beast. He comes after. There's still time to make a course correction. And then what does he see next in Revelation 14? He sees Jesus come. That's what he sees after the third angel's message. Notice what John says. Then, after that, I looked and behold a white cloud. And on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown. And in his hand a sharp sickle, he says. Jesus has come to reap his harvest. He's coming to take his children home. That's the picture we have there. But it comes after the third angel who follows the second, who follows the first, who said the judgment has begun. So clearly in Revelation, judgment does begin before Jesus comes. But John tells us when it starts. Daniel tells us when it starts. It began back in 1844. That's why in the first angel's message, there is an urgency about his message. You know, my friends, this afternoon, this is one of the most solemn messages that can be given to the planet Earth today. Noah preached for 120 years. There's a flood coming. Jonah was told to go and preach to Nineveh that in 40 days the city would be destroyed. Now in the end of time, God has a message to say the judgment has began. My son is about to come. Get ready, world. 
Notice the urgency. John sees this angel. He is flying. He's in a hurry. Then I saw another angel. This is the first angel. He was flying. He's not walking across the scene. He's flying. He's in a hurry. That's how he's portrayed. He's in the midst of heaven. He's very prominent there. In That's the, the idea that John's given. This is a prominent message. He's having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation. He goes to every tribe, every tongue, every person, because God so loves the world. Saying with a loud voice, fear God, give glory to him. Why? For the hour of his judgment has begun, has come. It started. That's the force of the Greek. So worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of waters. My friends, this afternoon, that's a solemn message for the world. The world doesn't even realize it. We don't know when it's going to finish because when it finishes, that's when Jesus comes and we don't know that. No one knows the day of the hour. But right now there is a judgment going on. That's good news for God's friends, but... It's not bad news, it's good news. Why? Because justice is on the Antichrist system, the Bible tells us. Antichrist has been casting down the truth to the ground. So justice or judgment is on this power because of that. It's been destroying and falsely accusing God's people, as we're going to see. So justice is needed for God's people. That's good news for the friends of God. How will God judge Antichrist and show him to be in the wrong? Well, we'll understand a little more about Antichrist next weekend. Of course, we'll unpack all that. But how will God judge Antichrist? We, we can see very clearly in the Bible how he will do that. First of all, let's think. The Antichrist is a, is, 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 a system that's made up of people. Antichrist is not some building or something. It's made up of people. And that's how God can uh, have a justice system against people who have been doing the wrong. Those who have lost their moral compass, who have no concept now of following God, these are the people who will have to face the judgment of God because of what they're doing to God's friends. And John portrays that in the Revelation. Now, you see, this is a very important for every one of us. If Christ is not first in our life, then we are against Christ. Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me. And if we continue on that pathway, we will one day be part of the Antichrist system. We will just become part of it because at the heart of it, it's the these issues. Is Christ First in my life, if he's not first, then we're against Christ. To be against Christ, Christ's people, I should say, is to be against Christ because they're his people. So if anybody's going against Christ's people, then let us be well aware that we will one day join the Antichrist system ourselves because of this. This is the, the way God sees his people are so important. That's why when Paul was persecuting Christians, Jesus said, why do you persecute me, Paul? I'm not. I'm persecuting your people. That's me. They're my people. So to be against Christ's people is to be against Christ, and we will join the Antichrist system. To ignore Christ's commandments is to be against Christ because they're his commandments. And if we continue that, no matter who we are, myself included, one day we will be part of the Antichrist system ourselves. That's why God wants us to understand very clearly what is going on here. Now, all people will be judged in the end of time. 
That includes Christians as well, let me say, say, because that's what the Bible teaches. First of all, Paul wrote these words. He's talking to the Christians in Corinth here. He says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. All of us. He wrote the same words to the Romans. He said, so then each of us, and he's talking to the Christians in Rome. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. God takes our living seriously, you see. The way we relate to people is very important to God. Now, there's good news for us because the Bible teaches us if we're the friends of God, judgment is in favor of God's friends. There is nothing to be afraid of. Look what it says here. Back in Daniel 7, it says, The same horn was making war against the saints, and it was prevailing against them until... The ancient of days, that's God Almighty, he came and a judgment or justice was made, and notice what it was made, in favour of the saints of the Most High. We have nothing to be afraid of if our lives are hidden with Christ in God. Judgment is in favour of us, and justice is a good thing for God's people. We need justice. What will God use to judge our lives as we think about this? Well, the Bible makes it very plain. So speak, says James in the New Testament, and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Now, what's the law of liberty? He explains it to us. He who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. So in other words, the Ten Commandments are going to be the measuring standard in God's great justice day. In other words, God's measuring standard in the judgment is the Ten Commandments. Why? Because these protect our most important relationships in life. You think about it. We notice they show what state the heart we have. Is it a loving heart? Is it a heart that loves God and that loves other people? That's the issue in the judgment. It reveals do we really love God And do we really love other people? You will notice Jesus said these words, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's the way he put it. Because at the heart of the commandments of God is a love relationship with God and with other people, as we saw the other evening. So judgment reveals whose heart we have. Do we have the heart of Christ or do we have the heart of Satan? That's at the heart of this. Now, what aspects of our lives will God examine in this judgment process? Well, he tells us, Solomon speaking here, God will bring, he says, every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. We may hide it from our parents. We may hide it from our kids. We may hide it from our husband. We may hide it from our wife. But nothing is hidden to the all-seeing eye of God. And this is what he tells us here. Every work will be brought into judgment. Not only that, Jesus went even further. He said, every idle word men will speak, they will give account in the day of judgment. That's pretty awesome. Lots of people speak a lot of words, but he's really talking about words that hurt, words that tear down, words that wound, words that destroy people's lives. Very serious. And finally, Paul puts it this way when he's talking about the judgment. Notice what he says. He will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels. That means our thoughts and our motives of the heart because a person can give lots of money for the wrong reasons, can't they? They can do it for wanting to be seen to be a, you know, a very generous person. Really, it's a pride matter. 
No, God judges the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So what is it that God will examine against the Ten Commandments? Our words, our works, our deeds, our thoughts, and our motives. That's a solemn thought when you think about it. But let me tell you this marvelously good news. It, we understand from the Bible how we can make it through such a process which is going to examine those things, and that's what the Bible says. That's what Jesus says. That's what Solomon says. That's what Paul says. God shows us how we can make it through with joy. It's in that first angel's message. What is it in the first angel's message? There it is, right there in the middle point again. I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven. But what does he have? He has the everlasting gospel. This is at the center of this message of the judgment, the everlasting gospel. And what is the gospel? We could sum it in one verse. This is it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are where? In Christ Jesus. My friend, the question you and I have to ask this afternoon is this one. Are I, am I, are you in Christ Jesus? Have you accepted him? Have you put your trust in him? Have you and I decided that we, we, you and I, will put our life in his hands? That's the issue that is at the heart of this matter. Are we following him? Are we willing to go and do whatever he asks of us? Now, how can you and I face the judgment with absolute hope and confidence? Let me show you as we close how it's possible. In the Bible, it tells us this. Christ is your advocate or your lawyer. As your high priest, he's your lawyer. Notice the way John put this. John, writing to his friends, he made it very plain that if we accept Jesus as our saviour, and follow him as Lord, he stands for us in this judgment. John puts it this way, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. I don't want you to do the wrong thing, and God doesn't want us to do that. But he says, if anyone does sin, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. There is somebody who speaks on our behalf, a lawyer, so to speak. Now, not only is Jesus the lawyer, Jesus is also the judge in the Bible. Notice what Jesus said. He said, listen, the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Now, you think about it. Jesus is your judge and Jesus is your lawyer. That is mighty good news if you go to court, right? If you go to court here in Hornsby and the judge is your lawyer, that's, you, the case is stacked in your favor, right? Because the judge is your lawyer. That is a tremendous position to be in. In fact, that's a biblical position. Usually we think of a judge as someone sits up the front, and he bangs his hammer on the table, go to jail or pay your bill or whatever it is. It's a stern looking process. Someone's our lawyer over here and the judge is in front of us and it's a scary, but not in the Bible. The priest was not only your advocate or your lawyer, he was your judge. That's all in one person in the Bible, in the Old Testament and in Jesus, it's all the one thing. He's the judge and he's the lawyer. That's mighty good news, but there's even better news than that. And that is this that Jesus, your judge and your lawyer, took our judgment. He took the rap that we should have taken. Notice the way the Bible puts it here. 
Jesus is speaking just before his death. Now is the judgment of this world, he said. Now the ruler of this world, Satan, will be cast out. And then he said, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And then he uttered these words. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. My friends, at such a solemn time that we are living in, whether we believe it or not, whether we know it or not, those are the facts of life because the Bible prophecy points to this event in this time. But thank God we have a lawyer, we have a judge who's the same one and that same one went to the cross for us. That's why in this judgment that is now taking place, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. My friend, this afternoon, I know this may be a new idea for some of us, but it's a very biblical idea, and God wants the world to be, know what's taking place and who's about to finish it off, who's to come. Who is that one? He is the judge, he is the lawyer, and he took the place of every one of us, and that's why there's no condemnation. You know, it happened here at Auschwitz. I was here just last year. Somber place to visit. But in some respects, when you visit one cell in particular, the light shines in this place. It so happened that on one occasion, someone had committed an infraction of the rules of the Nazis in this prisoner of war camp. And they were all brought out to the square and they had roll call. And the commandant explained, he said, listen, somebody did something wrong, 10 of you will die. That's the way it was in this concentration camp. Minor infractions, lives were so cheap. 10 of you will die for this, he said. And he began to read out the numbers. Number, calling out their number, one by one. Finally, he came to the number of one man, Francis Kajanajik. And when he cried out, called out his number, Francis Kajanajik was heard to moan, no, sir, not me, not me. I have a wife. I have kids. Please, not me. What will they do without me, sir? Please, not me. But he continued to read on the numbers. But after a few moments, there was a stir and a man stepped forward and said, her commandant, I have a request. He was a Roman Catholic priest, Maximilian Colby. He stepped forward and he said, sir, I'm a priest, I have no family, I have no kids, I have no wife. Francis here, he has a wife and children. Sir, may I take his place? May I take his place? Please, sir, let me have that one request. The the commandant didn't know what to do. He looked down, he, he just didn't know what to do. And finally, after a few moments, he said, permission granted. And he continued to read on. Francis Kajanajik went free, well, at least in the prison camp, Maximilian Colby was taken with the other nine men and he died an horrific death in that concentration camp. And you can read on one of the cell walls, Jesus was here. And that's a bit of a reflection of what Jesus has done for every one of us. We had our name, as it were, but Jesus took our place. And this is the beautiful teaching of the Bible. Justice must come. When you are in a situation where you know that you need justice, you long for justice. All through the Bible, 
God's judgment day is looked forward to by God's people because they will be exonerated. But they will be exonerated because of one great reason. Jesus the judge and Jesus the lawyer took their sin because they asked him, Lord, make what you did, make it for me. I believe we should pause and thank God for this incredible prophecy that's given to us in the book of Revelation and Daniel. Let's just bow together in prayer. Father in heaven, for some of us, this is a startling thing because we thought there was plenty of time to keep going, but no, there's not. God, in his prophetic clock, has struck an hour and the judgment has begun. Whether we know it or not or whether we believe it or not, right now in heaven, there is some sort of a justice process going on. And when it's finished, Jesus will come for his children. Lord, may today we put our life in the hand of Jesus Christ because then we have nothing to be afraid of because the gospel is good news, the good news that this judge, this creator, this lawyer, He took the place of every single person on planet Earth. Lord, today, may we put our hand firmly in the hand of God. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Ancient Mysteries with Pastor Gary Webster on Faith FM. Join us again same time next week to discover more ways in which the history of our world confirms the Bible and its messages of the past and future. Right around Australia, you're listening to Faith FM. Faith FM.